I want to take you on a journey back in time now, to a time where the words light pollution were foreign tongue. I want you to imagine yourselves standing on the banks of Sydney Harbour in the days before British settlement. On a moonless night, you feel the winter chill whip around the water as the last rays of sunlight catch the top of the trees. As the sun goes down, its light is scattered more and more by each and every particle in the atmosphere, transforming the sky from a brilliant sky blue to beautiful pinks, oranges, and reds, before fading to a deep royal blue, as the shadow of the earth dominates the sky. With every minute that passes, new twinkling lights appear above you. Some are bright, and some are dim, but all of them are beautiful. Once the sun has completely retreated from the sky, you can see it all. In the clean air, you notice some of these twinkling lights shine in different colors. Most appear to be white in color, but some shine with hints of blue or red, showing off a little bit more about their nuclear fires. A shooting star, also known as a meteor, dashes across a dazzling carpet of stars that stretches across the entire night sky. It looks milky, like a stream. But also oddly resembles clouds, sparkly clouds. This is the Milky Way galaxy. Towards the south, you can see two other separate blobby clouds, one larger than the other. These are the small and large Magellanic clouds, two dwarf galaxies that orbit the much larger Milky Way in a romantic, eternal dance choreographed by gravity. That is awesome. Great. Beautiful. I don't have enough words for describing this. Oh, thank you. I'm so proud of it. I can't. I still can't believe that it's now available on YouTube and it's been viewed f over 45,000 times within a week. I can't believe it. It's just. Oh, I have to pinch myself. Yeah, I have here the exact number: 45,018. Mm. So romantic. Oh, thank you. So, and I want to thank you for giving me some fantastic photos to use in my presentation. But that is nothing. You did the work. I mean, I didn't <laughs> do anything else. I just provided some few nice images and that is all. In case you are wondering, that was Kirsten talking in TED for Sydney. Uh, TEDx Youth at Sydney. Okay, but mm. I'm not that familiar to all the different TED talks or whatever, <laughs> but uh, it is available in YouTube. And please, please have a look to it because it is really Amazing the way mm. she does it, as she always does. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it is the good moment for starting a new episode. Yes, so we're back again. We are back. Um, I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks, the TED Talker. And, And we, we are, are the Scientists. scientists. <laughs> Alrighty, everyone, welcome back to The Scientist. Oh, it feels so good to be here again. I know we went, we were here a couple of weeks ago when we had our black hole episode again. It was a month ago. It was a month ago? A month ago, yes. Stop it. <laughs> Time doesn't go that fast. It is, it is. When you are very busy and oh. you are all your studies and your exams and so on. 
on the bright side, I'm done with the first term of honours coursework. So now you have a break. I have a bit of a break. I have about two and a half weeks. However, I should probably start writing my thesis at, in, during this time. Mm-hmm, but that... now I can actually focus on that. And as people would have seen on my Twitter, I'm just so excited to get back into research and actually start learning about things that I'm much more passionate about. I can imagine that. But you are also using a bit of this uh, extra time that you are getting, of free time from uni, mm-hmm. to do a bit more science communication. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited because we... Yes, it is actually we. some <laughs> science communication next week on Tuesday and Wednesday. And while I can't be there on Monday... Because you are working at Sydney wor- Uni. Oh, we're working at, uh, at tutoring. I'm teaching physics uh, on Monday. Teaching phys- I'm ah, teaching physics okay. on Monday evening. Yes. Good, good, good. So while, while I'm, you know, educating the, uh, the the next generation of physicists... I thought you were the next generation of physicists. The next next generation of okay, physicists. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, Angel will be at Pint... Well, let me just say, we're going to be at Pint of Science. Yes, we are hosting some of the events that... Uh, happening in Sydney, which mm-hmm. we are very proud. I have to say that I have been involved in Pint of Science Sydney for three or four years already ah. in the collaboration and coordinating even some of the events. Uh, this year, because of circumstances, I'm not that much involved, but of course, I'm providing my feedback and, and input. And we are both hosting mm-hmm. as the scientists. We are on the Tuesday and Wednesday, so the 21st and the 22nd of May next week at the Botany View Hotel in Newtown. On Tuesday, the topic is all things small. So good things come in small packages. We're going to be talking about all things quantum. I'm very excited about this, despite the fact that I just finished my quantum exam yesterday. I can imagine. quite excited to learn a little bit more from a different perspective that's not just honours level physics, which would be fantastic. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately... That is sold out. It is sold out, yes. Tuesday Actually, two out. or the three are already sold out mm-hmm. on Tuesday and Wednesday. And Wednesday, yes. Before moving on, um, let me just remind all the audience, the people who are listening to this podcast, that Pint of Sciences is an international festival of scientists mm. that are going to a pub to talk about science. And drink about science. And drink about science. <laughs> so it is uh, very famous worldwide. There are many, many different countries participating mm-hmm. in it. I can say that, for example, in Spain, it is very, very famous with 50 or, or even more than 50 cities wow. in there. So That's incredible. For our Spanish listeners, please go also. And in Australia, its popularity it is increasing with now 19 cities participating all across the country. And also multiple events in yes, so those the, places the, too. The same night in Sydney at least there are five different That's uh, locations. Right. Yes. So we are in, in charge of emceeing yes. one of the locations, which is the one in Newtown. Yep, Botany View Hotel, just to let you know again. But um, as we've said, Tuesday night and Wednesday night have already sold out. So, sorry. So, sorry if, about that. If you don't have your ticket, bad luck. But Monday night is not sold out. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet, which for, is all about data BTs. Yeah, so that will be for me because you can't make it. Um, yes. but, but it will be fun. I have been doing this before. So, we will have uh, Mr. Gideon Mayer with Scott's uh, epidemiologist. Is that yep, correct? That sounds about right. Yeah. Epidemiologist at the University of Wollongong, Western Sydney, talking about diabetes, and then surveying the proteins of our bodies by Professor Sean O'Donogal from the Gerbang Institute of Medical Research, which is kind of CSIRO 
BioB Center. That will be interesting to hear about that. Yeah. And then the second day, on Tuesday, you were mentioning uh, the quantum computers and quantum physics, mm-hmm. first by Dr. Juval Sanders, a postdoctoral researcher at Macquarie Uni, at ah, the university fantastic. I am. And the second talk will be improving Amazon with quantum physics. Now, that sounds very interesting. I'm very excited for that talk. Yeah, we will have some funny, interesting comments. Oh, sure yes, I'm sure, that. I'm sure. And that will be a talk by Mr. Christian Marciniak, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. Excellent. And then we have... The, oh, my favorite. I'm so excited. The very, very exciting day on Wednesday. Now, Wednesday is going to be doubly exciting or triply exciting because, one, it is our favorite topic. It is titled Enter the Dead Star. So it's all things astronomy. So that's the first great thing. Second great thing, it's also my birthday. Well, and, and I will add <laughs> also that we have two great speakers. Yes, and which is the third thing. Sarah, one of the speakers, Sarah Reeves, Sarah Reeves, is a colleague of mine at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. And that is the other point: how the two of them are going to connect together, and we have two female astronomers. Ah, oh, excellent! Which is absolutely awesome. Excellent. So that will be first Dr. Devika Kamath, who is a very good friend of mine here at uh, Macquarie University, a lecturer in astronomy and astrophysics, talking about the cosmic tango. Ooh. Because she is going to be talking about double stars and how they are evolving and what they might happen when one of them die. Excellent. And uh, what is an astronomer doing in a museum? What is an astronomer doing in a museum? We'll We'll have to find out. That is what uh, Sarah Reeves will tell us in the second talk on Wednesday. I'm so excited. It's going to be so much fun. Let us know if you're coming along to these events, if you managed to get tickets before Mm -hmm. they sold out, and uh, we'll see you there. I have to say that I would really like to try to get the equipment there to do a kind of a recording. For Ooh. this episode. Let's yes. see if it can be done. I, I still do not know. Depending on the resources of the Botanic Bay Hotel and some few other things. Logistical things. Logistical things. We'll figure it point. out. Okay, good enough. Enough publicity <laughs> for us. Space news. Space news. Just yes. That. Uh, well, my impromptu space news is that, oh, thank goodness I'm done with exams and we're back. But also, the moon was once thought to be geologically inactive. It is now flippity-flopped. Is now thought to be geologically active, which is very exciting. We're seeing potentially moon quakes. So data was used from the 60s and 70s to have a look to see, uh, coagulate these, this data for, uh, not Mars quakes, the other one, moon quakes. moon quakes. And it's believed that the moon is still geologically active from a couple of things, potentially because it's from its shrinking and from tidal heating from the forces from the Earth mm-hmm. and the sun as well. So very interesting stuff there. Yeah, it is. And, and that is a new news coming from yesterday or a couple of days Only ago. A couple so of it's days very, ago, very, so very, 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 very recent. Yeah. And, and I have to say that now because of this, we are going to... We have to change a bit of that topic in our lectures about not only the formation of the solar system, but also about how these bodies are now, the the terrestrial or the telluric planets. Mm. Because when we are talking about terrestrial planets, we are only not adding Mercury, Venus, the Earth and Mars. We are also inputting there the moon as a Ah, planet. Interesting. So it is interesting when we are doing this because at the end of the day, it is very similar to what we expect in a telluric planet. Well, it could have ended up being a planet back in the day yeah. if it hadn't, you know, 
crashed into the Earth and then became the Moon. Exactly, exactly. We have been kind of very different and very probably we will not be talking right now. That's right. Anyway, the idea, the conventional idea was that uh, it was all already frozen in, in the interior. Mm. So there will be perhaps a bit of heat in the nucleus still remaining, but not that much and not enough for doing moonquakes. Mm. So that is a very interesting piece of research that is now coming with this new data, combining the different data. So we will pay attention to that. Yes, we'll develop the story as it develops. <laughs> yes. And for my space news, I'm actually going to do a little announcement because I think that that space news should be a proper topic for a new episode. Oh, okay. Which is about the cosmic controversy that uh, is this... happening at the moment. Mm. Because new observations using the Hubble Space Telescope that have been observing the, particularly the large Magallanic Cloud looking for Cephates, Yes. Variable stars. Which we discussed in our episode about female astronomers a couple of months ago. Yeah, because that, they, they were the way that Henrietta Leavitt mm -hmm. used them to actually derive the distance to the Magellanic clouds. And that is the first step in a letter to try to find the distance to the galaxies. And not only there, but also to understand the expanding universe. Yes. And the, the, the evolution of our universe, the composition of how much dark matter, dark energy and baryonic matter mm -hmm. it is. And all of that. So it is fundamental in all that path. So the new observations using the Hubble, that was named after Edwin Hubble, because one of the main things that this telescope have to do was to try to put a very good number of the Hubble constant. Yes. This observation, we are able to get a much better calibration between the period of a Cepheid, I mean, the time that a Cepheid needs for changing it, its brightness, mm -hmm. and the luminosity which yes. is the way that we use for getting the distance to the galaxies. Yes. Once we know the distance in an independent way to using the uh, Doppler shift, mm -hmm. which is the velocity, we can extrapolate what is now called the Hubble-Lemaitre law. Ah. Remember that since October last year, the Hubble law, it is not the Hubble law. It's it is not. the Hubble-Lemaitre. There we go. Do you know who was Lemaitre? No. We will talk about that in another episode. Excellent. He was a priest who mm -hmm. was actually the very first one developing by theory to propose that uh, the universe was in expansion, was an expanding oh, universe. Cool. The problem it is, or the controversy comes or is arising, that the number that now we are deriving of the Hubble constant using nearby galaxies mm -hmm. and the number of the Hubble constant that we are deriving independently using the cosmic background radiation, Yes. those two estimations of the same number using the two different methods are not giving the same number. No. 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 One number... That's not okay. That's not how physics works. Ah, uh, well, that, that is the thing. So one number, let's see what I do have it here. So using the nearby galaxies and the new calibration by uh, Adam Rees, actually was the, the main author of this research. Adam Rees was one of the astronomers who got the Nobel Prize in physics for discovering the accelerating universe mm -hmm. using type 1a supernova. Well, Adam Rees, and in this paper, they estimate that the Hubble constant it is around 74.03 kilometers per second per megaparsec yes. with an uncertainty of only 1.9%. Okay. But... Using the data from the Black Satellite, the European Space Agency, 
and the best cosmological models that we have right now, last year they got that the Hubble constant it is only 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsecs. That is a pretty big difference. It is a bit different and also the error bars are very small. So that mm. the error bar for it is only 0.74%. So even they are very far away yeah, even they... considering the error bars. Exactly. So there is a problem there. Yes. There is something that is not working. Physics is broken. <laughs> That might be one of the reasons. In another episode, I will say that I would like to, that we will discuss this a bit more um, in depth. Yeah, we'll go into more more detail about cosmology in Cos general. Exactly, and, and talking a yeah. bit more about how the Hubble constant and the Hubble-Lemaitre law uh, was determined and the fight during the 20th century trying to determine the, mm. the value of the Hubble constant and now what is happening with this one and you know, and why that is also very important for all, some few of the projects that are now developing. For example, here in Australia, we have mm -hmm. the Taipan instrument at the 1.2 meter uh, UK Smith telescope. One of the main objectives is to try to put a good number and with a very small er error bar to the Hubble constant. Right. Groundbreaking science happening left, right and centre. This is fantastic. That is great. Okay, but I think it's now time to get on to our main confabulation, which is to say our main chat for today. Because we, thanks to Cam on Twitter for suggesting the topic for today's episode. We're so going to so that is also a kind of a feedback. A bit of, a bit of feedback, yes. Feedback. Bit of feedback. So it is a long feedback. The feedback is going to be also the main topic of main the topic. episode yeah. for today. Which today is uh, we've both brought in quite a large pile of books. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about a little bit about our favorite uh, space and science books and share them with you. And hopefully you guys will, maybe you've read them too. You can tell us what you think about them as well, if we don't mention something, or you can read them. Yes. So that is the idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a bit difficult and challenging because there are some few very good books around there. There are. And putting it down to only five or six was hard. Ah, uh, yes. It's well, very I, hard. At the end of the day, I was just taking this book, this book, this book. Okay, I'm going to at least mention quickly this. So I don't know how many do I have because that is the same. That is the same. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, seven. Wow. And um, I have I have six. So uh, I think... More or less. Do you, do you have yours in a hierarchy order? Um, your, I feel like we should no, start at the bottom and then go up to our favorites. You can do that. Yes, you can You can do that. Okay, let's go, let's go to do that. Okay. Let's go to try to do that. So Good idea. My first one at the, well, not, not so much to say at the bottom of my list, but... Of, of course, because if they are here, they are already the best of the best. They are already the best of the best, exactly. For us. So, yes, for us. So my first one I want to mention today is by Neil deGrasse Tyson. It is Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. I think it's very good. It's a nice little small book. It's very cute. I have mine hardback, hardcover, very decadent. Okay, mine's also signed by Mr. Tyson, yeah, which is pretty cool. Very good. But I think it's a very good way to just, it, it really is for people in a hurry. If you want to learn a little bit about astrophysics, but not commit fully to a, an entire year or an entire degree, this is a really great book to start with, I think. I completely agree. I That was one of the gifts I gave to my partner last Christmas. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. It's very good. There's just, it goes through everything in space, basically, as much as you can in such a small book. So that is, 
Number six of my list. Okay, number six of your list. Uh, let's see where I'm going to start. Um, I think I'm going to start with, mm, as we are saying, not that particular order, but uh, I have already, or we have already talked about this book, and I think it is worthy that we say that again here. Mm -hmm. The Glass Universe by Dava Sobel. Talking about the hidden history of the women who took the measure of the stars. Ah, yes, so they're all about the computers, and of course it's called the Glass Universe because they did that on glass plates. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, because they were just astronomers, male astronomers usually were the ones carrying the observations and taking the data that mm -hmm. in those times were not, of course, in computers. Disk <laughs> 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 of it was it was just uh, photographic plates mm -hmm. and this crystals then later were analyzed by this amazing group of women usually using microscopes mm -hmm. and some back illumination to get the precise position and brightness of stars yep. and also well when they were doing the very first attempts of the studying starlight using a spectroscopy mm -hmm. but we talked a lot about these women in the episodes about women in science. We did. Yeah, a couple of episodes ago, I think mm -hmm. it was. Yes. Good. Okay, one book down for each of us. My next one on number five is a little bit different. It's not really a book about astronomy, so to say, but, uh, and I'm sure you'll understand what it's about when I tell you the title. It's a book by a guy called Daniel Smith, and its title is called How to Think Like Stephen Hawking. Mm. I really enjoyed this book because it's, despite the fact that it's not really let's say, science-y, it is about a wonderful person in science, of course, the wonderful Stephen Hawking, but it also it gives you an, an insight into how his brain works. And despite all odds, literally one of the, one of the uh, chapters is called Overturn the Odds and it's just persistence and perseverance, and it's just a great book into overcoming obstacles in order to do what you love regardless of anything else. I think it's a really great, a great little inspiring book to kind of like put you in the position to achieve success, whatever that means for you as well. That is very important, not only for science, but in life in general, I will say. Mm. I can add a kind of a personal note there because when I was very sick last year, sometimes I was comparing myself to a Stephen Hawking. Not, not of course, I'm not as uh, bright or a genius that he was. Mm -hmm. But uh, perseverance and the the aptitude of trying to, you know, recover and trying to do things besides you are in a sick body, let's say that. Yes. Because the only part of my body that was not affected by the Guillain-Barré last year was my brain. Mm. I couldn't move anything. I couldn't move even the eyes and, and have to be sedated for some times. But when I was awake, that was me with my thoughts. The majority of the time I was thinking a bit about life, but later a lot about work, about the papers, about science communication, about science fiction novel that I would like to write eventually. <laughs> so and, and next I was, time we do this, your book will be up here. Ah, uh, well, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a very interesting book to feel inspired, mm. but someone with that huge personality, considering all the problems that he have had and with his body. Yes. In, but his brain inside this bad body, this mm. wonderful brain inside his body. So, superation. Yeah. And you overcome that and 
it's just fantastic. It's really inspiring. So how to think like Stephen Hawking, Daniel Smith comes in at number five on my list. So I think I'm going to take this one now. Okay. But again, it is not a specific order. It is just that I decided I'm going to talk a bit more about this book released last year, When Galaxies Collide, by our friend Lisa Havre-Smith. Fantastic book, and I can't believe I didn't think of this myself, because I ah. couldn't find it last night, but it is, I, I'm so glad you brought it, it is a fantastic book. I thought that were, you were bringing it, but anyway, I said, okay, I think that we probably will agree in, in this one. Lisa is providing a very interesting personal view, mm. because this book has a lot of personal details about she, how she became an astronomer and mm. she went to observe the, the Halley or no, but the Halley or the... No, it's a different... The, the, the Hel Hellbob. Hellbob, I the think. The Hellbob comet yeah. and how she started learning physics and doing the degree and doing the PhD and getting there and trying to get a better understanding of mm. the universe doing mainly um, radio astronomy that, the, that is the main path that she has been following and then putting in perspective main uh, ideas about astronomy and um, how we have been evolving as humans and into this uh, better understanding of the cosmos and also looking a bit into the future, into what will happen yes. in four, five, six, the numbers are still moving around, billion years when both... Uh, the Andromeda Galaxy and the Milky Way will collide. And we become Milkdromeda. Milkdromeda. Although I saw on Twitter this morning that someone wants to call it the milkshake. The milkshake. <laughs> okay. That is also nice. That's also quite good. So that is why this book is called When Galaxies Collide. And it is really a very good book to have a read and have a look to the different images and mm. our and position so many, in the cosmos. There's so many quirky stories in there too. I love it. And it is very easily, it's only 150 pages, so it is just very easy to read. It is. So it is a very recommended um, book that please go and go for it. Yes. All right, coming in at number four on my list is another Stephen Hawking-related book. In fact, it is written by Stephen Hawking, and I think you can all guess what it is. It is, of course, A Brief History of Time, From the Big Bang to Black Holes. This is... A great book. I can't even remember when I read it, but I covered a cover within a week, let's say. I think it was around, around in high school at some point when I read this. And it's just, oh, my goodness. Just such a good book. There are so many fun topics. The title says it all, to be honest. It's, just, it's literally a brief history of time. It's very much on the order of astrophysics for people in a hurry. But for from the perspective of Stephen Hawking, he was more of a quantum physics, particle physics sort of person, as opposed to a broad astrophysicist from Neil deGrasse Tyson. So I really like this one. It's fantastic. I'm sure most of you have read it before as well. Yeah, and, and I will say that it is a very good book, of course. It is an excellent book, but you need to read it at least a couple of times to realize how much there is in that little book. Mm. So I remember re reading it when I was also a teenager and it was just released. It was the Big thing. It was the big hot book, Ooh. a science book in what was the late ninety, the late eighties or the early nineties. I don't know if it is the first edition. I think it is around 90, eighty something or ninety one. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Yeah. Eighty eight. First and published in Great Britain in nineteen eighty eight. Wow. 
And, and I remember when I read it the first time that perhaps I couldn't get the majority of the details. And then when I was at uni, I had another reading and I was starting to get more details, particularly the quantum physics. Oh, yes. That was I hidden there. That, that at the times. beginning was a kind of, eh, whatever, okay, whatever. Well, I'm astronomy, not that much quantum physics. And that was in the moment that not only reading that book, but also doing the degree at the uni, mm. how important it is quantum physics for astronomy that we have also mentioned that in this podcast before. And then um, perhaps the last time I read it was some, it might be 10, 15 years ago, but I was already a professional astronomer. Uh, probably it was when I was still doing my PhD for that time. And again, I was able to find some few other different levels of mm. thoughts that were hidden there. So it is absolutely a must. It is. And I now I'm bringing back, I remember the, there's a chapter about the arrow of time. I had to read that many times, many times over to actually understand what was going on. And actually looking at the first couple of pages of this chapter, I'm recognizing quite a bit from my honors level physics, uh, quantum physics exam. <laughs> so maybe I could have read this book to help study. I don't know. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps. Yes, it's very good. Definitely give it a read. Now it is my turn again. I'm just trying to have double check. Ah, yes, that was a couple of years ago. Um, the book I have now in my hands, it is a book that I have not completely read. I have been reading it um, a bit jumping from one part to the other, but uh, uh, there are many things that I have liked a lot about this book. It is called The Planet Factory oh. by astronomer Elizabeth Tusker. And the first thing I have to say, it is that this book, I knew about it thanks to Twitter because I found it in that some conversation and I actually was talking even with the author in some conversations in Twitter. That's and cool. I said, okay, I think I'm going to get it because, you know, exoplanets and search for the second Earth, which is the subtitle of the book. It is a very hot topic in astronomy at the moment and everyone is very excited about everything that is happening. And that book is putting us in perspective about all the different kind of planets, the methods, the diversity of planets that we are finding there, that sometimes I like to compare them with Star Wars planets, water planets, uh, planets with two suns, and something like that, uh, frozen planets, and then also trying to even find the moons oh. and the uh, search for life. It is really, really, really a good book to have a look to you know how the the idea of planets have been changing also with time not from only knowing the nine planets of the solar system now eight yes <laughs> <laughs> to now the i don't know how many so many dwarf so, planets and dwarf, minor bodies so many things but i'm but i'm also putting all the exoplanets that we have now oh, discovered course. that have some few thousands already all right well on to number three we're getting to the exciting end of the of the uh, list now. So, yet again, it is another Stephen Hawking book. Mm, do you have something with Stephen Hawking? I, look, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I, might, I might like Stephen Hawking a little bit. I think you have been doing too much quantum physics lately. I have. Honestly, <laughs> it's rubbing up. And you me. are biased because of that. <laughs> yes. Um, but yes, my next Stephen Hawking book at number three comes in. It is Black Holes and Baby Universes and Other Essays. I really like this one because I mean, it may sound a little bit intimidating because it's, it's literally essays written by Stephen Hawking. And so him being such a brilliant mind and all of that, it can be a bit intimidating. But he puts these 
conversations into perspective so that everyone can understand. Like there are a few things that you have to read over and over and over again just to really cement it in your brain, but it is still a very, very good book. There's lots of really fun topics in this one too. And I find that with this one, you can pick it up and read any chapter by itself because it is specific essays. They're, they are kind of in a logical list that they go through. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with his early childhood, um, how he dealt with ALS or his experience with ALS. But uh, my favorite that I kind of want to read again is the, again, I'm getting biased, The Quantum Mechanics of Black Holes. Yeah, I'm getting biased. Because <laughs> that sounds really interesting. So this one's really great. This one comes with my top three. Number three, Stephen Hawking's Black Holes and Baby Universes and Other Essays. Good one. I have to confess that I have not read that one. Oh, you should. That's it's got a, good stuff. So I will I will definitely have a look to it. Excellent. Good. So the next book that I have here, it is uh, a book that was written by a very good friend of, of probably of us. We know him very well, Fred Watson. Excellent. Esther Geyser, The Life and Times of the Telescope. And I can also say that I have his signature in this book. <laughs> that was, and I even have here a summary of the book that I took. And I'm talking about that was perhaps one of the very first in 18 August, August 2007. Oh, wow. When I moved to Australia for the very first time, you know. And that was during National Science Week 2007. Yeah. I still have this here. What a poster. Ah, uh, yeah, because I was um, just new in Australia. And, and although, although I already knew Fred, I met him some few years before on that at the, at the Agnostern Telescope. I was really, I have never had had the chance of listening to him. So it was the very first talk that ah. I heard by, by Fred Watson. And I was old. He's great. It's so, so good. So fantastic. And it is uh, about a topic that, um, that people also appreciate, many amateur astronomers we appreciate in the sense of understanding how we have been developing the telescopes mm-hmm. and the techniques. And I don't think that they can be someone with much more knowledge about this than Fred, yes. who, who have been working in large telescopes for, you know, all his career, moving mm. to Australia to be in charge of both the UK Smith Telescope and the Anglo-Australian Telescope, and how everything has been evolving. And he also loves this kind of history that mm-hmm. is hidden, constructing all of these different instruments and uh, telescopes for getting better views of the cosmos. Please, uh, it is uh, 2006, perhaps? 2004. Oh. Well, I have some few years, but again, I think that it is a very good book for getting a bit understanding of all of this. Stargazers, the life and times of the telescopes. How cool! I like I like the cover too. It's very cool. Yeah, the co- this cover is is great and have the foreword by Sir Patrick Moore. The cover it is Atlas with all the heavens, mm. and then there is a little astronomer here that I don't know who this might be. Percival Lowell. I don't know. Have to check, but have to be someone <laughs> famous. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, we're getting closer now. Number two on my list is, of course, there had to be a book written by this fantastic science communicator. We all know he's my hero, and I aspire to be this person very much in my life. And it is, of course, by Professor Brian Cox and by Robin Ince as well. It is called How to Build a Universe, Part 1. Part one. Part one. 
I don't know if there's a part two yet, but I really hope there will be because I would love to read part two、mm-hmm. with this one as well. So it is adapted from the podcast The Infinite Monkey Cage, which if you listen to it, please do. It is so funny. I really enjoy it. But this book, it's I don't know if I could call it a book. Like it is a book, of course. Like you open it, you read it. It looks like a book. It's shaped like a book. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck.、Um, it's put in a very different sort of,、uh, let's say, context. So it doesn't read as if you're just reading from one voice. Like it's not just Brian. It, it's also、uh, Robin is also in there, and it's very funny because it's very conversational. So it is much more like kind of a conversation. It is a conversation. It's it's they they confabulate and they just keep talking and it's so funny.、Mm-hmm. I was I was in stitches for most of this book. <sighs> it's just so good. Like for example, there is and if you listen to the Infinite Monkey Cage、uh, liberally, like I do, the second part of this book or with it sub part I'll say because the book itself is part one, but、uh, the second chapter let's say is called Life, Death, and Strawberries. Okay. Which if you listen to the podcast. The infant monkey cage. You'll understand. You will, you will get why. You'll get it. Okay. It's very funny, and it's just there's another、um, there's a recipe to build a universe. There's evidence and why ghosts don't exist, and of course, finishing with apocalypse. Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. But、uh, it's fantastic. Such a funny book. Very entertaining. Read it cover to cover within a week. It is so much fun.、Hmm. And they even give you a bit of homework at the end. Oh yeah. There's some homework at the end. So your challenges.、Uh, there's only the seven challenges. So challenge number one is explain in 100 words why you are not living in a simulation. Some of you may find this easier than others, as Brian never saw the simulation of half of the readership, and Robin simulated the other half. See if you can work out who your simulator was. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, what else do we have? Using three pebbles and a piece of string, derive pi to 217 decimal places. Okay.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, there's many more, and I won't, I won't spoil any more of them. But read this book; it is so funny and so informative. It is fantastic, and it comes in at my number two. Okay, and it is also a kind of a different book. It、said. is.、So、it is a very different kind of book to many of the others that we have been talking about. Okay, now I'm going back to another book that has some few years, but I have read it a couple of times, and I have to say that、uh, for me, have been always.、Uh, Great book to read, and that was actually 2002 when it was published the first time. It is called "Seen in the Dark" by author Timothy Ferris. So Timothy Ferris, he is not an astronomer; he is a journalist,、Ooh. but he has been doing plenty of interviews to astronomers and astrophysicists and amateur astronomers. And this book, it is actually great because it is giving you the perspective. Of how amateur astronomers and professional astronomers work to try to get the light of the universe using their telescopes. It is a kind of poetic book, inviting people to become stargazers. And、uh, Timothy Ferris is reporting what it is like to be looking through a telescope and see planets like Saturn or galaxies and nebula, and it also promoting. The connection between the professional astronomers and amateur astronomers doing the kind of、uh, research together. I mean, using amateur astronomers to do actually research in astronomy, some kind of projects that can only be made by amateur astronomers and very difficult to get using professional telescopes. And 
also connecting to different uh, people for because at the end of the day uh, the majority of this uh, th th there is some, it has some few three different parts and the second part it is a conversation with different interesting people for example number episode number seven the realm of, of the sun it is a talk with brian may then a talk with patrick moore a visit with percival lowell james turrell a visit with david levy mm. so they're famous people that have in some way of interviewing or visiting and trying to understand what they were doing so mm. it is giving you also a bit of the historical perspective right. or, or some and a bit of a personal side too and yeah and, and also as i was saying Amateur astronomers. Episode 15, for example, it is uh, using a, a virtual visit to a, te a robotic telescope. Cool. So, and have very short chapters, so there are many, but they're usually very, very short. And that is why it is easy to, to read. And you can read one, and then another day you read another. Some of them are just only four or five pages. Although the book in total have 370 pages or so. Mm. So it is another good book to, to have a look to. Excellent. So it does are, sound pretty cool. Yeah, you are providing the kind of a more recent kind of books. Mm. And and I cannot help myself to say these are the books that really motivated me. And, you know, I learned things from these kind of books. Yeah. Okay, here we go, guys. My number one science and space book is The Universe in Your Hand, A Journey Through Space, Time and Beyond by Christoph Galfard. I love this book so, so much. Uh, at the time it was published, first released, Christoph held a PhD in theoretical physics, or still holds a PhD in theoretical physics from Cambridge University, and he was Professor Stephen Hawking's graduate student from 2000 to 2006, researching the so-called black hole information paradox. Hmm. So another great person, I guess you could say, scientifically descendant of, of Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Hawking. So again, it is related to mm -hmm. Stephen Hawking. It's, gosh, I'm really showing my colours today, aren't I? <laughs> Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking. Um, it is a fantastic book. It really puts things into perspective and honestly, it's very conversational yet informative. So it's fantastic. But it takes you on a journey of the universe and when I read it, I honestly felt like I was immersed into space. Like I've... I was lost in the book as if I was lost in space, but while also knowing where I was in space mm -hmm. in the same way. It's just transformative or transportive, both really. Transformative and transportive is fantastic. I love this so, so much. I have not had a chance to read that book either. Mm, it's, a long, it's a bit of a long one, about 400 pages, but so worth it. So, so worth it. You, honestly, you, you start off on a volcanic island on the beach enjoying the stars, and then suddenly, whoa, you're in space by the second mm. page. It is fantastic. Okay, well, I, I will definitely have a look to this one. It is your number one. Mm -hmm. Can I see the, 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 the portrait again? It is interesting because I have never heard about that book. Really? Really. It's a great one. It's just, I, I don't remember where I found it, but it was, I, honestly, I don't know how I found it, but I'm so glad that I did. It's all starry on the front. Yeah, a silhouette yeah. of a person. You could you could imagine yourself as that silhouette, yeah. just um, looking at the stars. You know that I have that photo. 
that that photo of myself with oh, my silhouette. I I, yes, it should be my there in the door, and I also did a recent version of myself pointing to the center of the Milky Way. Oh, the I last time that. I, I was there at the at the AD. That idea came from the cover of a previous book by Timothy Ferris that in Spanish she was called La Aventura del Universo, like the adventure of the universe. And I, th I think it is only in the Spanish cover where you see the silhouette of two people pointing to stars and galaxies. Um, interestingly, the original title of this book in English is Coming of Age in the Milky Way. And it is another very recommended book, by the way. Mm. Okay, yeah, so that is my that is my top six books. Your top six books. So I have said one, two, three, four, five. I have two more. I will say first this one, which will be my top one. Oh yes. And my top one can only be one book. Of course. And many listeners will be thinking, why? This book still have not been mentioned in the <laughs> podcast when We're we are almost... We're saving it to the end. It cannot be any other than the great Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Of course, it has to be mentioned. So it has to be mentioned. doesn't matter that it is how old, almost 40 years old. Uh, it is just amazing the depth, the knowledge, the thoughts, everything that it is in there. Um, and I was hooked to astronomy thanks to Carl Sagan, as perhaps many of people of my age, uh, watching the TV series. But later, it was much more reading this book than the TV series, because the TV series, you remember those times, but you, didn't, you were not born. I was but not those born. <laughs> times in which you even didn't have a VCR, and then you have to wait till it was released in the TV for that period, for that hour. If you miss it, you miss it. And you have to wait for perhaps some few years till it was released again. Then we got the PCR. But anyway, for, <laughs> for me, the Cosmos, the book, my my version, that the original one, it is in Spanish, of course, because I was still, I don't know, I was 10 years old when I got this book. Yeah. Full of things and notes and almost broken, the poor, the poor book. <laughs> I have two or three versions of the book, including the one in English that I also read later. And... It, don't have enough words for defining <laughs> this. I think that everyone should read it. Yes, definitely. That's I a, honestly have not read it yet, but I know it's going to be got to be fantastic. That doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that it, that it is forty years old. There are mm. so many things that are still so actual, and of course the images. Perhaps they are. We have now Hubble images that mm. are amazing, and many other different kind of images and videos. But uh, it was the art by some artists that were illustrating the book with this, um, I don't remember the names of them, and I should, but really, really good. At the end of the day, the importance it is what it is telling. That's the, right. The history that it's telling. That book also won a Pulitzer Prize. As it deserves. It deserves every prize. And uh, the Hugo Award for Best Nonfiction Book. And it was 70 weeks on the New York Times bestseller wow. book. There is a kind of a sequel, which is the Pale Blue Dot. Of course. A vision of the human future in space from 1994. But um, it is Cosmos. It is that book, the one that we have to read about. The 13 episodes of Cosmos. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Harmony of the Worlds, the shores of the Cosmic Oceans, Encyclopedia Galactica. 
<laughs> the edge of eternity. Oh, it's just, it's, it's yes, just captivating, it isn't is, it? It is just captivating. Mm. So yes, you have to go for it. There we go. That's the, those are all of our book recommendations. But I have an extra one. Oh, what? No, I have another uh, one. Yeah, because we have been always talking about you know books that you read, mm-hmm. and of course because that is what we books are about. Yes. Um, and you try to get something from there, but. Our podcast, we have been always not only professional astronomers or astrophysicists, but also very much focusing amateur astronomers. And okay, I understand that right now we have something that we call apps. Oh, yes. We ha- we, as we mentioned in our episode, we yes. got our best space for, apps. For looking into the sky and knowing the stars and the constellations. But in the good old times, when <laughs> we didn't have those, there was a guide... This book that I have here, I have two versions of it right now. The one I got when I was 12 or 13 years old, which is in Spanish, and another one that I got here in Australia that uh, I did in English. The Film Guide to the Stars and Planets by Donald Menzel and Jay Pasachoff. So that is a book that it is not for reading, but for... Oh, it's literally a sky guide. A sky guide for consulting, for with tables, with observations, with images, with... You want to plan your observing night and the kind of different maps that you get uh, different months of the year from the north, from the south. Huh. And then the that something that I, I can show you better in, in my old one because you will see that it is almost broken and <laughs> with plenty of notes here, there, the position of a comet here, because it has plenty of the details of the stars and the deepest sky objects in it. In, in It has 54 maps, very detailed maps. And I remember just um, many observing nights with my red light and my telescope and trying to move from a star to a star following this book. Oh, wow. So That's that is awesome. why I couldn't help myself and say, okay, perhaps because of a bit of a romantic astronomer, but don't forget to also have this kind of a book of how to observe um, maps, um, how to get into a bit of the, into amateur astronomy. Mm. And that will be it. The Field Guide to the Stars and Planets by Donald Menzel and Jay Pasachoff. Well, you know what? I reckon we should uh, pick our what's up from the book. Okay. Let's yes. see if we can find our what's up. So... Thank you all for listening to our recommendations. We hope you enjoy these books that we've brought along for you today. If you have other ideas, please let us know and recommend your books to us because we love reading. I promise I'll get to books when I finish my honours degree, possibly. Um, But, yes, thank you all for listening. But now we're going to find our What's Up, which is going to be the lovely, the beautiful Jewel Box. And that is in Map 49. And, and it is interesting because every map in this book, uh, usually it has a map, and then it ha- at the at the right uh, part of the uh, of the page, and in the left page, it have um, a bit of the description of the most important objects. Ah. But there's some only three or four maps that, instead of having only one description, have three pages of description. Oh wow! Because there's areas of the sky that are so rich. They that, are. There's that, so much stuff. And for this one, map 49, that is the one in Spanish. Let me find it one to read exactly what it is in, in English. Eta Carinae Colsac Nebula Southern Cross. Excellent. So it is just crossing all that around. 
same map to see <laughs> the same book um and for that we are going to the jewel box the jewel box yes for beautiful what's... beautiful open star cluster in the southern cross there's the stars in it this is what a question i often get when i'm showing this beautiful object through the through the observatory telescopes is are these stars part of the southern cross constellation they are technically but when we think of a constellation we think of especially with the southern cross we think of the four stars that make the asterism five or five well and five <laughs> yes the in the fifth right four or five right but yeah. so these mm -hmm. these stars the jewel box are a little bit if you're looking at the southern cross when it's upright these stars are a tiny bit to the left of the left point of the southern cross so they're not quite exactly part of the main part of the constellation or the asterism, but they are in that part of the sky, and so they are part of the Southern Cross constellation. Mm -hmm. So that star of the Southern Cross, it is Mimosa. Ah, there it is. That one. Remember that we were also mentioning the names of the stars of the Southern Cross oh, yes. in one of the very first That's episodes. That's right. And, and it is a very interesting uh, open cluster, star cluster, First, because you can actually see it with your naked eye. Mm. If you are in a relatively dark place. Of course. Because it is relatively bright. Of course, you will not distinguish the stars, individual stars, but you'll see. You'll see the little The loop. little blob. <laughs> and then using binoculars, you will start to perhaps identify some few stars. And looking only using a small amateur telescope, you will see plenty of stars there. Uh, it is also called the Kappa Craxi Cluster, or NGC 4755, and it is located at a distance of 6,400 light years. That's pretty far. And something interesting about this cluster, it is that it is really, really young. It is? Yes, only 14 million years old. Now, while that does sound like a big number, that is very young for stars. It is very, very, very Considering young. stars live for billions of years. It is one of the youngest known, wow. for sure. And that is why the majority of the stars are also very blue. Mm, but there is one. That is one. That is very distinctively known as the ruby of the jewel box. And of course, you can guess the ruby being red. Yes. A red star. And that is the one that is given the name. The name was actually um, given by John Herschel, who described the jewel box like a super B piece of fancy jewelry. Mm. So that red super giant star, it is a M2 star, Dew Crux, that is the name. Mm -hmm. um, it is actually a variable star. Oh, Changing magnitude between 7.1 and 7.6. That's pretty cool. But it is not regular. So it is an irregular variable star. So you don't know oh. exactly when it's going to be brighter or fainter. Anyway, it is again um, WhatsApp, much more for our friends in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes. We are trying to emphasize to our friends in the Northern Hemisphere that they have to visit the Southern Hemisphere to yes. really appreciate how beautiful the night sky is. It we have the best night sky. It is beautiful from the north, but it is completely gorgeous. It is just the best from the <laughs> southern hemisphere, particularly now that we are starting to be into winter. Yes. Winter time here in the southern hemisphere, long nights, cold, it's time to be a bit colder. And, and the, Milky Way, the Milky Way rising. Right. Yes. And the Milky Way rising. That was, that was the point. That for us, it is very, very, very 
night in the center of winter it is when you have the milky way crossing the sky at the beginning of the night mm. which is the best moment to start gazing i will say excellent all right well that brings us to the end of our episode today we've done pretty well we've gone through almost 12 12 books 12 or 13 books 13 books with, 13 books. with this one yes mm-hmm. um like i said before please do let us know what you thought of these books if you end up buying them or reading them or borrowing them from a library let us know let us know what you think if you agreed disagreed even exactly let um, us know and what other books do you think we should have considered for yes. today is you have your favorite astronomy or space science related book mm-hmm. please let us know yes and if you're coming to Pine of Science we'll see you there yeah. and hopefully we might have a few recordings from there we'll see but we will be back officially for the next couple of weeks hopefully we'll try and record a bunch of episodes mm-hmm. so that we can keep putting out episodes while i'm again busy at uni for next term and i'm going to be away yeah, and you're going to be away. i'm going to be away because i will be in at the end of june i will be traveling to chile for the total solar eclipse oh i'm ah, jealous ah, ah. <laughs> so it will be a bit of busy time for us we hope you have enjoyed this episode. Perhaps we will see some of you next week in Pine of Science. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye.